Welcome to the So What Question, a podcast for historians to share what they do and why it matters. I'm Evan Falkenberry. In this episode, you're going to hear from Lisa A. Lindsay, a Bowman and Gordon Gray Distinguished Term Associate Professor of History at UNC Chapel Hill. You're going to hear about her latest book, Just Out, from UNC Press, called Atlantic Bonds, A 19th Century Odyssey from America to Africa. And in our conversation, Lisa talks about the subject of her book. It's a story about a man named James Churchwell Vaughn, but it's much more than a biography. It's about Vaughn, and it's about his family on two sides of the Atlantic Ocean. So Vaughn grew up as a slave in South Carolina, but then moved before the Civil War to West Africa and lived in Liberia and what's now southwestern Nigeria. And over the course of time, he became wealthy, and he kept up his bonds and his family ties in South Carolina and in the U.S. So it's a story about slavery and freedom and unfreedom on two sides of the Atlantic Ocean. You'll hear Lisa's enthusiasm for the project, how she researched and wrote the book, and she gives three, actually four, answers to the so what question, which I won't spoil. But I begin by just asking her how she came to find this project and write this book. The book is called Atlantic Bonds, a 19th century odyssey from America to Africa. And the odyssey was made by this guy, Vaughn, who nobody has ever heard of. But he was an African-American from South Carolina who in the 1850s followed his father's deathbed request to go to Africa. And he first went to Liberia with the American Colonization Society. And from what I can tell, had a very disappointing time there. And two years later, accepted a job with some missionaries from the Southern Baptist Convention who were Mm -hmm. passing through on their way to what was known then as Yoruba country. And that's now southwestern Nigeria, some 1,500 miles, 1,200 miles to the east of Liberia. Mm -hmm. And so what he knew about Yoruba country at this point was virtually nothing. There was still slave trafficking coming from there. It was said to be roiled by warfare. Uh, But he took the job and ended up in what's now Nigeria, where he spent the rest of his life, some 40 years, until the 1890s. I should say he was born in 1828. Mm -hmm. And during that time, he witnessed some of the most important transformations in West African history the wars that were still feeding the slave trade, the suppression of the Atlantic slave trade, the rise of missionary Christianity, the um, beginnings of British colonization, and the beginnings of anti-colonial or anti-racist movements on the part of Africans, um, one of which he led. So, and during all of that time, he kept in touch with his relatives in South Carolina. He had been the only member of his family who went to Africa. He had a large family and he left them in South Carolina. And so his story provides an opportunity to compare his adventures and prospects and ultimately success in Nigeria with what was going on for his family in Civil War era and then Reconstruction era and then Jim Crow era United States and the United States South. So that's the motivation for the title of the book, which is Atlantic Bonds. It's a play on words. Bonds on the one hand 
refers to the ubiquity of slavery and unfreedom in the Atlantic world. Because one of the things Vaughn noticed, couldn't help noticing, is that no matter where he went, there was slavery. He left the United States South in the 1850s. He went to Liberia, which was founded by African-Americans looking to get away from the United States South and nonetheless became an approximation of a slave society in Liberia. He got to Nigeria and was in fact captured in one of the wars that was feeding the slave trade. He saw slavery all around when the British colonized the place. One of the reasons that they justified their actions was on the basis of trying to stamp out the slave trade. And so it was everywhere. And that's part of the, the motivation for using the term Atlantic bonds. But it's also about bonds of family and community in the African diaspora. Um, on the one hand, Vaughn left his family to go to Africa. But this idea of going back to one's roots, going back to the mother country is, has been a very powerful one in African-American history. And in fact, the very idea of diaspora has been conceptualized as one of a family and of, of community ties that were broken in the era of the slave trade and then reconnected. Um, Vaughn's story is not quite so simple, but when he lived in Africa for some 40 years, he created new ties and he created new bonds while maintaining the ones back with his family on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you know about Vaughn's early childhood and growing up in South Carolina, his family in South Carolina? So he was from Camden, South Carolina, born there in 1828. His father was an African-American slave who came to Camden before the turn of the 19th century from Virginia with his master. And this was part of a movement of the expansion of the plantation mm -hmm. societies out of Virginia and Maryland, the old tobacco mm -hmm. area, producing area, into the deeper south. Mm -hmm. So they were um, bringing plantation life to the South Carolina upcountry. Camden is not near Charleston. It's in the South Carolina upcountry. And by the early 19th century, it was um, full of tobacco, uh, sorry, full of cotton plantations. And uh, James Vaughn's father was named Will um, Scipio Vaughn, a slave name. Mm -hmm. His father's master was Willie Vaughn. And they came as part of this movement out of Virginia to expand plantations in, in the South Carolina upcountry. James Vaughn's mother was never enslaved, and she was probably half, I, I don't know exactly the genealogy, Native American. Um, the family legend is that she was Cherokee. I don't think that's true. I think she had a Catawba mother, and we know who her father was. Her father was an African-American named Bonds Conway, who was a free African-American who had himself been taken from Virginia and brought to upcountry South Carolina, but had gotten his freedom. And he fathered a child with a Catawba woman. And that was James Vaughn's mother. I should say, I keep referring to him as James Vaughn because we introduced him as James Churchwell Vaughn. He actually went through life using the using church as a first name he was church vaughn so um i'm going to shift and start talking about him as church vaughn because okay. that's how he talked about himself that's how he signed his name and things his early upbringing was that he was part of a large family he was um the seventh out of nine children 
And he was born after his father had been freed through a provision in his master's will, but many of his siblings had not. And one of the things that hung over his childhood was his parents' knowledge that his father had struggled very hard to get his freedom. He had been promised freedom in the master's will. And then it was never really clear whether that promise would be acted upon. When the master died, the provision was supposed to kick in five years later, the widow kind of equivocated. The historical records are very ambiguous about the slave or free status of Scipio Vaughn during this time. There also was a very large slave uprising, alleged slave conspiracy, rather, um, in Camden in 1816, which made white people very, very wary of um, black people getting out of their place. And this was in the con this was the time in which Church Vaughn's father was trying to act upon this possibility of freedom. And so it was very unclear whether this was going to be made real or not. At the same time, this is also the period, I'm talking about the first 20 years or so of the 19th century in upcountry South Carolina. This is a period in which Catawba societies, which had been quite viable, are being pushed off the land, are being deprived of political rights. Um, the Catawbas, in fact, were compelled to sell almost all of their land to the state of South Carolina in return for a very small uh, reservation. And then they even left that and went to North Carolina to try to hook up with Cherokees, and then it didn't work, and they came back. And so his mother's society was becoming increasingly undermined. So Church Vaughn was born, actually, after his father was officially free, officially free, but it's unclear what his father's status was when he was born. And his mother's people were becoming increasingly insecure. So he himself was never a slave, but he was an African-American, half African-American, half Native American, in a context in which life for both groups was increasingly precarious. And so I think that's why he was receptive to this idea of getting out of South Carolina, if possible. And the family story is that uh, Scipio Vaughn died in the 1840s. Uh, and according to legend that has been passed down through the generations, on his deathbed, he gathered his children and grandchildren all around him, and he said, get out of South Carolina, go to Africa. This was in the 1840s. Church Vaughn was 12 years old when his father died. So he wasn't going to do this at the time that his father died. But 12 years later, the opportunity came up to go with the American colonization. And at first he was American Colonization Society. And at first he was going to go with a brother and then the brother pulled out. So he's the only one who went. But the family story is that he was motivated by his father's deathbed exhortation to go. In Nigeria, Church Vaughn's gravestone is this giant monument in the old cemetery in central Lagos, and it tells a story on an inscription on the tombstone that wraps around the tombstone. And it said, he left Africa, sorry, he left South Carolina owing to the racial oppression that he suffered. And so there's a, it doesn't say anything about the deathbed story, but those two are not incompatible. I'm thinking, I'm trying to imagine what life for Church Vaughn would have been like uh, and more largely what it would have been like to grow up in a family in South Carolina that's, you know, part 
some members of his family are free and some are slave. Uh, I think we tend to think about, or at least I tend to think about, you know, either slavery or free, you know, a kind of sharp dividing line. But he grew up in a family that was both or ambiguous. And so I guess I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking about what, what do you know about, the, even though he was free, what kind of racial uh, oppression he experienced growing up in South Carolina in the 1840s and 1850s? I don't have a journal from Church Vaughn. I don't have direct documents about his childhood experiences. I do know that his father's promise of freedom was increasingly, it was, was continually sort of held out in front of him and, and pulled back so that it became very hard to make real. And I know that things were very difficult for his mother. Um, but to give an illustration of what you just said, this kind of limits on freedom, even for a family where everybody, except perhaps the father, was legally free, uh, I can point to one of his sisters who worked as a domestic servant her entire life in a plantation in Camden. And this plantation had more than a hundred slaves. The family was extremely wealthy. And one wonders why they hired a free woman of color to work in their house when they had all these slaves. And perhaps part of the answer is the fact that when this woman, Church Vaughn's sister, was in her early 20s, she gave birth to a baby who was so light colored that the census taker described the baby as white. She continued to hold this job from the time that she was a teenager until the master died when she was in her 40s, at which point she married for the first time. So, you know, there are these things that free people of color had to do because they were in a society that was dominated by slavery. So. The numbers are all in my book, um, and I don't have them at hand right now, but Camden in the 1850s, let me just say, at the time when Church Vaughn left, had roughly equal numbers of white and black, a slight black majority. The almost entire African-American population was enslaved. So something like 5,000 African-American slaves, something like 70 free people of color. So they were a tiny niche in this society. And they had free people of color who they were related to through Church Vaughn's maternal grandfather who had been a free man of color and who had a large family because he married three times and had a whole bunch of kids and they were all free. And so they, most of these 75 free people of color, in fact, were all related. Um, so it wasn't that they were 100% isolated, but they were in a very, very narrow social and economic space. What's the story about how Church Vaughn got out of South Carolina and got to Africa? So the American Colonization Society had been founded in the 18-teens as a vehicle for transporting African Americans to Africa. It was based on the notion that black people did not belong in the United States and that they belonged in Africa. And it was funded over time through a very shaky coalition of 
white anti-slavery activists who thought it would be personally good for many African-Americans to get out of the United States, um, and pro-slavery supporters who thought getting free black people out of the United States would help buttress slavery, um, and they had some political allies. Beginning in the 1820s, they started settling small groups of African-Americans in what became Liberia. And they sent voyages, they sponsored uh, the sailing of ships that would send these immigrants to, to Liberia. Um, most, for most of its history, the main group of people who ended up on these ships were former slaves from the South who were freed on condition that they would leave. But there were some free African-Americans who went as well. This was very controversial among African-Americans through the 19th century, and Frederick Douglass, for, once was, for one, was against it. William Lord Garrison was against it uh, because they felt that, they, that this was being banished from the United States. At any rate, there were some white colonization supporters in Camden. And they would circulate the colonization society's pamphlets and try to raise money to send to help support the colonization society. And when he was a young man, Church Vaughn came into contact with one of these, actually through his sister, who was the domestic servant at the big plantation. And he and his family signed up to go. And according to the American Colonization Society records, initially he was going to go with his bro older brother, his mother, who was by this time widowed, and at least one, maybe two of his sisters. And there's correspondence from the, among the Colonization Society officials about whether they wanted the women or they just wanted the men, blah, blah, blah. But they started getting in touch with Church Vaughn and his and his brother about what it would take to do, to get on one of these voyages and how they should plan to outfit themselves and what the logistics were and all of this. Um, and they were probably motivated, as many immigrants were, that is African-American immigrants to Liberia were in the early 1850s by the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. So the Colonization Society really had pretty dismal um, success until the 1850s. They had a trickle of settlers who went starting from the first voyage in 1822. But, and there was a little bit of a surge after Nat Turner's rebellion. But basically they didn't get a lot of uh, voluntary immigrants until 1850 mm -hmm. when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed. That was probably what prompted the Vons as well. In the end, the women in the family decided not to go and it was just going to be the two brothers. And then the two brothers pulled out. The correspondence in the American Colonization Society records indicates that they had been persuaded by African-American opposition to colonization, including by Martin Robeson Delaney, who was um, an African-American activist based in Pittsburgh who was going around making speeches against the colonization society. So they, they pulled out. And then in another reversal, Church decided to go. He, there was another party of would-be immigrants going from a different town in upcountry South Carolina, and they made their way through Camden on the way to the coast to get on a boat. And 
when they stopped in Camden, in Camden, they picked up another person to go with them, and it was Church Juan. And they made their way to Wilmington, North Carolina, where they hooked up with the American Colonization Society agent who was there and were put on a boat and taken to Liberia. Wow, that's really quite a story. And that was the last time. Church never returned to the U.S., right? No. The family lore is that he did. But, and I scoured all the possible historical records, and I'm convinced he never did. Okay. His daughter came. His daughter came in the 1920s. Just to visit or to, or to immigrate? No, to visit. To migrate, I mean. No, to, to visit and to place her daughter in Vassar College um, and to connect with her cousins who she knew about, had been in touch with, but had, had never met. And that began a series of visits that really picked up in the 1950s. So there was this one in the 20s. Actually, there were two in the 20s. One relative went to Nigeria and one came from Nigeria to the United States. And then more correspondence. And then by the 50s, there's a fair amount of back and forth wow. between members of the family that continued until the economic crisis of Nigeria in the 1980s. That's fascinating, and I want to I want to touch on that. But I guess first I want to just know about what life was like for Church, going to I guess first Liberia, and then into what was then Yoruba country, or what was called Yoruba country. And I'm sure you can only give kind of a smattering of detail, and there'll be a whole lot more in the in the in the book. But what was the culture shock like for him, and what was it like for him to transition? You know, I think there probably wasn't a whole lot of culture shock in Liberia because the whole objective of the colonization project, whether people said it or not, was to create the recreate the American South in Liberia. Um, and so he got there, and of course it's tropical, but he was from South Carolina, so that's not hugely different. And he landed at Monrovia, which at this point was a town of about 12,000 people. And it had a main road, and it had some American-style buildings, and it had some set, you know, it had a fair number of settlers. And the new arrivals were promised um, initial housing and then land and help for for six months until they got off their got on their feet, and. This was always highly problematic. It never panned out the way the promises were. Things were very, very difficult for settlers when they first got there. Not least, too, because they were dying of malaria when they got there and yellow fever that, that didn't survive very well in the disease environment. So things were really, really tough. But on the other hand, there was this infrastructure. There was this American community. It, things were tough materially. But I wouldn't necessarily call it attributed to culture shock. Um, all of the settlers were allocated a small lot in town and then ultimately a larger lot out in the countryside where they were expected to farm. Church Vaughn, I should say, was trained as a carpenter. He was a skilled carpenter, and which is how he had made his living in, in South Carolina. There's no indication that he had any interest in farming. And I, I'm pretty sure that he, or I speculate that he traded his farmland to some people he had become close to on the voyage 
in exchange for some of the produce. And he based himself in Monrovia and worked as a carpenter. And there was plenty of work for somebody who could build American style buildings because that's what the settlers wanted. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in, in Liberia, what emerged was um, a highly stratified society in which the immigrant elite, that is to say the African-American immigrant elite and their descendants built houses that look like plantation houses from the old south they cultivated cash crops like sugarcane and the labor was so-called apprentices um, who were natives of the area um, who many people have characterized were in conditions very much like slavery so anyway church vaughn was able to make a living mm -hmm. <laughs> as a carpenter um, but I suspect that he became quite disgruntled with this, with, with what he saw. Now, I should say, he never left a journal. He never left a diary. I'm piecing this together. His paper trail in Liberia is almost non-existent. Then again, everybody's paper trail in Liberia is almost non-existent because the archives have been destroyed. But he, he left after two years. He didn't marry there. He didn't found a family. He didn't farm. I'm guessing was called up for militia service because ever, all the settlers were called up for militia service. And later in Nigeria, he was described as a sharpshooter, a skill he probably did not cultivate in South Carolina, um, where it was illegal for black people not. to have guns. Um, so I'm pretty sure he did militia service in Liberia. And what the militia was doing was going out and fighting against African groups as a part, as a part of this colonization project to expand the influence of uh, and the and the geographic spread of colonization so between observing the labor relations on these emerging plantations in Liberia which i am confident that he did because some people he knew from the boat were involved in some of this um and serving in the militia and given his background I can understand why he might have become disgruntled and have been willing to take a job with somebody from with people from a racist missionary society yeah. going to a place that was had a very bad reputation. Um, the fact that he was willing to do that, I think, speaks to his disillusionment with the project of, of Liberia. Was he religious? Is no. Not at that time. He became very religious later in, in through his association with the missionaries. Mm -hmm. But at that time, he was not religious. So what happened when he joined up with the Southern Baptists and moved out into Yoruba country? So Yoruba country, let me just say, at this yeah. point... Quote, unquote. Yeah. Was a region of autonomous city-states, some larger than others which were remnants of what had been a large empire called the Oyo Empire. And the Oyo Empire had disintegrated beginning in the early 19th century because of revolts among some of its constituent parts, as well as um, this, and this was fueled by the constant demand for slaves at the coast. The whole 19th century has been called by some historians of this region the Age of Confusion. There's a lot of fighting between these constituent parts of what had formerly been one empire, um, a lot of slave trading, uh, a lot of religious change as Christian missionaries were coming in, and also um, 
a, a sort of jihadist version of Islam was expanding from the north. And so people were very insecure, new communities were forming, refugee populations were joining up with other people or splitting off from other people. And this is the context in which these missionaries, these very naive missionaries from the United States and Church Vaughan arrived. So he was with two white missionaries from the United States, uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention who who were pioneering a Southern Baptist mission station in this area. There were three, I think three other, three to five white missionaries from Britain in scattered scattered around the different city-states as well. I should also say part of this um, kind of changing demographics of, the, of Yorba Land at this time had to do with returned ex-slaves as well. The British, as part of their attempts to suppress the slave trade in the early 19th century, were stationing naval ships off the coast of Africa to intercept slave ships. And when they did, they rescued the people in, on board and they landed them at the British colony of Sierra Leone. A lot of these people were Yoruba people who had been captured in these wars that I've just been talking about. And they got on their feet in Sierra Leone, but then wanted to go home. and they or sometimes their children migrated back through the 19th century into Yoruba land. But they had already become conversant in English. Um, many of them were Christian through the influence of missionaries in Sierra Leone. They were, many of them were anti-slavery, although some of them became slave owners themselves. So this was a population that was coming in too. There were also returnees coming from slavery in Brazil through their own processes. So they're very heterogeneous populations. Um, and so Church Vaughn kind of had to figure out who were going to be his people. He's worked with, he was hired to work with the missionaries to build their physical structures, to build their mission houses and their churches because he was a, a carpenter. And he did that and he stayed with them and d did the work with them and, and became a Baptist, was baptized as a, as a Baptist through the course of this. But after some time, when it was clear like he could speak the language and he understood what was going on, he, he repeatedly worked to establish himself independently. And for the first 15 years of his time in Yorba Land, this never worked. So he would establish himself independently and then there would be some danger or some real disaster. In one of these periods, he was taken captive as a war broke out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he had to escape. At, um, probably didn't save him from being shipped out as a slave because he was so unusual. But the other war captives at this time were being shipped out as slaves to Cuba, um, some 13,000 of them. So he had these periods where he would establish himself, his own household, his own farm, independently of the missionaries, and he would continue to work for them for wages. But every time he got away from them, something bad happened. He was captured in this warfare. His house was plundered another time. Um, eventually in the 1860s, he had his own place in, in a town called Abiyakuta where there was a, an uprising against white missionaries and all the Christians were kicked out of the town. And so he was kicked out along with them. Along the way, he had gotten married. 
he had a baby at this point. And in 1867, when he was kicked out of this town of Abu Yakuta with the, with the Christians, he joined a flow of refugees that walked to Lagos. It was, um, well, how far is it? It's about 60 miles. And it was in Lagos where he arrived in 1867 that he really made his life. So he arrived there in 1867. He died in 1893. And Lagos was a British colony. It had been colonized officially in 1861, unofficially in 1851. And it was a place where the economy was booming. There was lots of work for a carpenter. And regardless of what one wants to say about colonialism, it was operating under rules that he understood. You know, there was a, a sense that contracts would be honored, that a person wouldn't just have their house plundered with no redress there were it was a system that he that he understood mm -hmm. um christians were and missionaries were protected and so even though he got there with nothing and he began to work as a carpenter he saved his money he made good social relations the place like i said the place was booming there's lots and lots of work and over time he got involved not just in being a builder but in hiring apprentices so that he could expand his operations and then he became a merchant dealing in um, building materials so like the tin for roofs and the hardware for for building and the nails all this stuff had to be imported and so he became an export import well he became an importer of building materials and and by the time he was in his 50s kind of got out of the business of building himself and became a merchant and he became very very successful now there, this was a period in which there was a rich african elite in lagos there were not very many europeans on the ground even though it was officially a british colony um the economy was transitioning because the slave trade had been suppressed from Lagos, which had, it had previously been a very large slave trading port, and the tra slave trade had been suppressed, and it was being replaced by a booming trade in um, palm oil and palm oil products exported out mm -hmm. through the port of Lagos. These were in demand in Europe um, as lubricants for factories, as industrial lubricant. So it's the period of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, palm oil also was made, used to make soap and margarine, and so big demand in Europe. And Lagos was just booming in this palm oil trade. Um, and the major merchants were these returnees from Sierra Leone, to a lesser extent the returnees from Brazil, um, and enterprising African merchants. Churchwan was never as rich as the richest of these, because he didn't get into the palm oil business. But he was comfortably well off, bought a bunch of plots of land in Lagos, built a bunch of houses, rented some out, um, extended loans to his apprentices, and became you know, a successful person. Successful enough so that his he had three children. He had three surviving children. He had seven children. Three survived, and um, two sons and a much 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 younger daughter. The two sons were set up. He set them up in business with him and when he died and they inherited the business they expanded the business and the sons really became quite quite wealthy um, so much so that the family has stayed 
not super elite in, in Lagos, but very, very comfortable and well-educated well and landed, which is important in, in modern Lagos. The family continues today? Yeah. Well, talk, talk a little bit about those bonds that Church Vaughn establishes with his family back in South Carolina once, I guess, he establishes himself in Lagos. Well, so this is where I've really been doing needle and haystack research because there's no great cache of letters back and forth um, or anything like that until the mid-20th century. But there are a couple of tantalizing clues about contacts between them, the earliest of which is that in the late 1860s, Within a couple of years of Church moving to Lagos and starting his business there, his surviving family in Camden received a package, and it was delivered to them, having been passed hand-to-hand-to-hand-to-hand, um, originally from a missionary who had been in Lagos, mm-hmm. a Brit- Southern Baptist missionary who had been in Lagos and who had gone home. To the United States, which turned out to be Greenville, South Carolina. And the package that they received was multiple small leather pouches full of gold coins. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, which came at a very fortuitous time for this family. And, and I've got a chapter in the book where I sort of detail what their situation was mm. in 1867. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really changed their lives. To Not that things got tremendously better, but it, it really helped them a lot. So the fact that he sent them this in 1867, or sorry, 1869, I think is remarkable on many levels. First of all, just the logistics of getting it done. But it shows that he was already making a good living in, in Lagos. And it shows that he hadn't forgotten about them. And I know they hadn't forgotten about him because along the way, there are children born in the family who are named Churchwell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which is an unusual enough name so that, you know, it's him. And in fact, one, is, there's a birth in the family right after the arrival of the gold coins uh. whose name is Churchill. <laughs> um, so there's some, you know, I don't have it. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But other than the gold coins, I know that there's somehow connections in this period. The next thing I know about is that um, Church's daughter, who was his youngest child, his surviving daughter, who was his youngest child, born in 1889, I think, had a very unusual name. Ada, spelled A-I-D-A, like the opera Aida, Arabella. Vaughn. And seven years later, one of his cousins in the United States named her baby Ada, A-I-D-A, Arabella. Hmm. Um, Coincidence? Coincidence? I think not. Uh, And in fact, it's these two Ada Arabellas who eventually got in touch with each other face to face. Wow. So in these early periods, I don't know exactly what the nature of the bonds were mm-hmm. other than that I have these clues that tell me they existed mm-hmm. so then f- fast forward to the 1920s Church Vaughn is dead his sons are prosperous merchants in fact they were the only automobile dealers in Lagos 
at the time. Um, his daughter had gone to England for her education and had come back and married somebody from a very prominent family in Lagos who was connected to old royalty but was also kind of a new elite. He was a, he was a lawyer and he was um, an up-and-coming politician. In fact, the British were opening up tiny little spaces in the what they call the Legislative Council for African representatives and he was, he was one of them. Um, so family's doing very well. They are elite in Lagos. They have they have houses that are described in the newspapers as villas. So at this point, somehow there's a renewal of contacts between the two branches, and it's the daughter, Ada Arabella, um, who gets in touch with her cousin, who has the same name, Ada Arabella, in the United States. And, and this is the early 20s. Um, and so the superior in the United States of Garveyism, of um, you know the Harlem Renaissance, this is a, and and by this time some of the American Vons had in fact made the Great Migration and were in New York, somewhere in Harlem. Ada Arabella was in Chicago, uh, and so I think this is a period in which the American side may have had kind of a renewed interest in their African cousins. I don't know. I don't exactly know what started the conversation. Ada in Lagos invited Ada in Chicago to come visit her and said, my brothers will pay for it. And Ada in Chicago was pregnant and sent her sister instead, whose name was, obviously wasn't Ada, but was also a first cousin of um, the one in, in Lagos. So the sister was a hairdresser from Harlem. I've got all this from the census, who lived in like a tenement house, basically. She goes to Lagos and she's put up in what the newspapers called a magnificent villa her, you know, her cousin is married to this guy who's just been elected to the Legislative Council in Lagos. She was a businesswoman herself, the Ada in Lagos. She had, she was a big trader herself. They had children who were becoming well-educated. They, um, they were fluent in Yoruba, but they, all, the, but the, the rule at their house was to speak only English on Sunday so that everybody could keep up their good English. Um, and so you got to imagine what this was like for this Harlem hairdresser to go to Lagos with all of the ideas of darkest Africa yeah. rolling around in her head. And, and of course, this was colonial Nigeria. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of discrimination. And one of, the one of the things that Ada's husband was working for was, you know, more Africans in the civil service, better educational opportunities for Africans and to race discrimination in various ways. Um, but life was so much better for this family mm. in, in Lagos than it was, you know, in the crowded tenement in Harlem where, where the, her cousin lived. So, so that's 1921. 1922, Ada in Lagos comes to the United States, partly to return the, the visit, and, but bringing her oldest daughter with her to enroll her in Vassar College. Um, and while she was there, she went to Harlem and visited family there. She went to Chicago and finally met her cousin who had the same name as her. And she went to Camden and by all accounts was really disheartened by what she saw in Camden. This is 1922 in Camden, South Carolina. Um, only a few of the old fam the family was even there. And she kept hearing stories about lynchings. Um, and in fact, 1922, this is after the Reds, you know, after the Red Summer, um, and in fact, the cousin she stayed with in Chicago 
this is I'm going to get tangled up in the in the family tree of this story. The cousin she stayed in with in Chicago was also married to a politically active lawyer. That guy's last name was Stratford. His father was Cornelius Stratford, who had been hounded out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, during the t- Tulsa race riot. But the the senior Stratford, having escaped this race riot, for which he had been charged and arrested and hounded by a lynch mob and fled to Chicago, um, they're in the house in Chicago at the same time. So this elite woman from Lagos is visiting the United States, and it's very nice to see her family and all this stuff. But everywhere she turns, there's white supremacy on display and, and scary, violent white supremacy on display. Um, and I think this was very affecting for her. How do you how did you piece this story together? Because <laughs> I'm because there you know you have a lot of great factual information, whether from census uh, data or from uh, newspaper accounts or wherever else. But as you said multiple times, like I don't know or I don't I don't know the nature of these bonds or how they were established or all the communications. So I'm just wondering how a historian how you you know, cons- uh, gathered enough information to write a book, Well, it took 10 years. <laughs> um, and maybe I should start with how I stumbled on this, because that's yeah. part of the method question. I had written an earlier book about gender and wage labor in colonial Nigeria. And having finished it, I thought that I was going to do another project about women and gender in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And... I got interested in this um, women's rights activist from mid-20th century Nigeria who had really pushed for women's education and women's political rights and I named Kofo Adamola. And I read, picked up a biography of her. Just, I was just like really getting started, really preliminary. So I went to read her biography. And on the first page of her biography, there was a footnote that said her grandfather had emigrated from South Carolina in 1852. And it completely piqued my interest. Who was this guy? How did he immigrate in 1852? How is it that this South Carolina immigrant um, produced a granddaughter who's a leading women's rights activist in Nigeria in the 1950s? Um, I just got, I got very curious about it. So I had a small grant to go to Nigeria that summer to get started on what I thought was this other project. And while I was there, I just started asking people about this family. And the old Nigerian elite is very close-knit. Everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, so I managed to get a friend of a friend who connected me with some of the Vaughn relatives, including the sister of Kofo Adamola, who had recently died, and also a cousin and some other people. And I would ask about the family. And every time I asked about the family, I had the same experience. It was a little bit like Groundhog Day or something. Um, they would tell me to wait. They'd give me a nice cup of tea, sit me down, um, and tell me to wait. And then they'd go rummage through a closet or a file cabinet or something. And they'd come back. This happened three different times within like five days. And hand me a copy of Ebony Magazine from 1975. Because Ebony Magazine in 1975 ran a story on the Vaughn family called A Tale of Two Continents. And they would say, just read this. This will tell you everything you need to know. And the story in the Ebony article is fabulous. It's much better than the story I've been telling. It's much more dramatic. And in fact, it's only partially true, as I found out later. But the linchpin of the story is that when Church Vaughn got to Yoruba land, he saw people 
with his father's country marks, these kind of ritual facial scars that, Af that are sometimes prevalent in African communities, or that were in the 19th century and so in some cases now. Um, and the, the marks designate where, what particular town or region people were from. And in fact, this is an aside, but they were particularly important in Yorba land in the period of the slave trade because people would mark their family members or communities would mark their community members in case they got separated. So the story in Ebony was that Church Vaughn saw people with his father's country marks and therefore knew that he had returned specifically to the land of his father. And so it's this great story of an African-American who literally found his people in Africa. And I was so excited with it. And this is why I decided to do the project. Like, this is magnificent. This is the best thing. It's so much better than Roots. Um, and I started chasing it down and going to Camden and looking at the family records and looking at the census records. And um, I encountered a genealogist who's distantly related to the Vaughn family in Columbia, South Carolina. And she had a copy or a collection of family Bibles that have family stuff written all mm -hmm. in the front of the Bibles. And she had the one from, the, from Church Vaughn's sister. Sorry, Church Vaughn's sister's daughter that had all the family names and dates in it. Mm -hmm. And in the front, in the family names and dates, it had Scipio Vaughn, that is to say, Church's father, yeah. the one who allegedly had the Yoruba country marks. Scipio Vaughn was born such and such a date in Richmond, Virginia. Wow. And so I, I was devastated because it meant he couldn't have had country marks. He couldn't have been born in Africa. Church Vaughn did not go back and find his people in Africa, even though he was there. Um, and then later on, there were other bits of evidence that corroborated the same thing. And I thought, oh, maybe I should just give this project up. This isn't, the story isn't really working out the way I thought. And then I began to ask a whole bunch of other questions that I think are ultimately more interesting. Um, because if the country mark story had been true, it would have been a fabulous story and I would have looked forward to making the movie. But it would have been so absolutely exceptional and yeah. singular. Um, that it might not tell us anything, really, about the larger world in which it happened. Um, but the fact that Church Vaughn was not related to these people, who he ultimately made his people, um, asks us, you know, about how people form bonds in this context. And it asks, what, on what basis did he go to Africa and how, find solidarities with people. Um, how in the world did this happen and why was he motivated to do it? And what can this tell us about larger trends in African-American and African and diasporic history at this time? Um, and so it, I, I think ultimately it's a virtue that he's not quite as exceptional as I thought he was to begin with. And so then I just started doing this, like I said, needle and haystack research. I started with the missionaries because the missionaries left records. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they, they mentioned Vaughn in their records, although they were so many, not all of them, but some of them were so racist that they, they wrote about, of him very, in, very dismissively and, and not very much. Um, but he shows up in some of the missionary records. When he became successful, he shows up in some of the commercial records in Lagos. His children certainly showed up in commercial and newspaper, social, you know, like social columns in the newspaper and things like that. Um, there, because remarkably, Vaughn descendants on both sides of the Atlantic have been very successful, or some of them, 
their papers are in public places. So Vaughn descendants in the United States included two ambassadors, both of whom have left public papers, in one in the Library of Congress, one in a library in Chicago. Um, Vaughn descendants in the United States included not only this women's rights activist, but the founder of the first anti-colonial political party in the 1930s. Wow. So they left records. Um, they don't always talk about their ancestors, but sometimes they do. And so I just started following all of these things. And also, I should add, I've been in touch with descendants in both places, but mostly more so in, in Nigeria. And they've been very, very helpful as well. You know, why should, why should people care about a singular, well, not a singular story, but maybe a, a story about a family, you know, one family out of many, many, many? Uh, what's, why are they worth knowing about in this time period? For me, there are three big answers to the so what question and then a, a smaller answer, <laughs> a, 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 another answer that tags along. And the first one is that this story shows us the ubiquity of slavery in the Atlantic world in the 19th century. We think, we Americans tend to think that our version of slavery defines slavery in the, uh, in the 19th century. And that wasn't true. Like I said earlier, everywhere Church Vaughn went, he went from one slave society to another. First in South Carolina, then in Liberia, then in Nigeria, um, even in places where you wouldn't think they're all connected by slavery. And it's not that this was just like bad luck, bad choices on his part. He ended up going to places where there was slavery. It's that these places were connected to one another and that they reinforced a system of Atlantic slavery that had ripples all over the place. And in fact, one would cause the other. So the fact that there was slavery in the United States South helped to create and perpetuate these unfree relationships in Liberia. Or the fact that there was slave trading in Nigeria meant that there was slavery in Brazil and Cuba. And the fact that there was slave trading in Africa meant that there was slavery in the United States. So they're all connected in this world where slavery was ascendant in the 19th century, in spite of abolitionism, in spite of attempts to, to mitigate it. Um, this, was, this was a broad piece of Western world history at this time, and, and, the, and Vaughn's travels illuminate that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that even where, there, where people were nominally free, Vaughn's odyssey shows us all kinds of degrees of unfreedom. The lines between slavery and freedom were not clear cut in any of the places that he went. Um, not in South Carolina, where free people of color had wage discrimination and lacked political rights, and in fact could even just be spirited away and captured and enslaved at any time, um, not only because of the fugitive slave law, but even before that. Um, in Liberia, where so-called apprentices worked in slave-like conditions and many Afri uh, African-American settlers were recreating some of the worst aspects of the plantation south in Nigeria, where these wars about were about politics were also feeding the slave trade, where there were thousands upon thousands of captive people exported, but also kept as slaves in Nigeria. Um, many of the people 
that Vaughn worked with in his building projects were in fact enslaved. Um, and Lagos was basically a slave society at the time that he got there. The elite um, had slaves to as their labor force. There really wasn't a wage labor force in, in, in Nigeria at this time, in spite of British anti-slavery rhetoric. And then even people who were nominally free in Nigeria under British colonialism faced increasing affronts to their autonomy and their political rights. And so the the notion that there's a thing, a bounded thing called freedom and a bounded thing called slavery really breaks down when you start to look at somebody like Vaughn and the worlds that he traveled through. The third thing has to do with the African diaspora. And that is that we're familiar with this kind of back to Africa impulse among some African-Americans. But we can also look at the diaspora in another way from the viewpoint of Africa. And what Vaughn shows us, Vaughn and his contemporaries show us, is the effects of the diaspora in Africa itself. I've talked about these Sierra Leonean and Brazilian returnees from slavery in Nigeria and particularly in Lagos. Um, but there are a couple of specific examples I can give even beyond the influence these people had, and, and their influence was considerable, to to show this. And, and one centers on Vaughn. I haven't talked yet about a pivotal incident and in, moment in, in Vaughn's life in which in the 1880s, he led a revolt against the, the white missionaries of the Southern Baptist Church. He They had really been formative for him in his early years, but by the 1880s, there was a new strain of white racism in, in Lagos. Um, it was part of a new impulse in Western thinking about race and also increasing European personnel that were coming in. Um, a new crop of missionaries, much more overtly white supremacist than had been there before. This wasn't just among the Southern Baptist missionaries. This was widespread in Lagos and elsewhere in West Africa. And in, in fact, in the Atlantic world, this is the time of the beginnings of scientific racism in the 1880s. And the missionaries were not the kind of people he was used to dealing with within his church. And in 1888, Vaughn and some other people spearheaded a, re a revolt against the white missionaries and founded their own Baptist church in Lagos. Why is this significant? Because it's the first non-missionary Christian church in West Africa. And it was the first of what then became a whole wave of new churches that were created independent of missionaries. And so this is the Africans really claiming Christianity as something of their own, something where they could exercise leadership themselves, where they could interpret it um, in much more culturally sensitive ways than had been before. And Vaughn was in the vanguard of this. With him in, in the founding of this new church known as the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Lagos were other people with diasporic backgrounds as well, including a Nigerian who had trained at a an institution, a Baptist institution in the United States called the Richmond Institute, which had been founded during Reconstruction as a place to train um, African educators and clergy, uh, sorry, African-American educators and clergymen. And it was physically an old barracoon and, uh, from the internal slave trade in, in Richmond um, and others from Sierra Leonean backgrounds. So here are people very aware of what was going on in the United States in this time, this is 1888, 
with the foundation of independent African-American schools, independent African-American churches as a way of um, dealing with white supremacy in the American South. And this model was clearly in their minds when they broke away from white missionaries in Lagos. They said things like, you can't make our church a barracoon, or if you want to keep us in slavery, you can't do this. And the missionaries write privately, oh, it's these diasporic Africans with knowledge about the Americas, about the United States, who are giving us all this trouble. Um, and then, like I said, this became the first of a much more widespread movement of auto church auto Christian church autonomy in focused in Lagos, but then expanding outward as well. And this is a, a very um, obvious example, I think, of how we need to think about the dias diaspora and diasporic history and African history intersecting in Africa as well as in the Americas. So those are the three things, the ubiquity of slavery, the fuzziness between slavery and freedom, and the influence of the diaspora in Africa. The fourth kind of tag along answer to the so what question is that I think in considering Vaughn's trajectory along with what was happening to his family and with his family in the United States, we are forced to confront the fact that they operated in the same chronological time. And what I mean by this is that too often people stereotype Africa as being backwards. Mm -hmm. Africa is always considered to be behind in something. And the whole developmentalist modernization paradigm of the 20th century is based on like bringing along into the present these mm -hmm. backward places, most of them in Africa. Um, and what we see when we put Vaughn together with his contemporaries and his family in the United States at the same time is that things like this U.S. Civil War and the one of the and the war that Vaughn was captured in were taking place at the same time. Reconstruction was taking place at the very same time that the British were working to abolish slavery in Lagos, and that Lagos was being reconstructed itself. Um, and in fact. If you compare him and his family, as I talked about with the, his daughter and her cousins, um, you see that Africa in this, for much of the mid-19th to mid-20th century is not behind. For this family, Africa was a much, much better place to be than the United States. Prospects were much better in spite of colonialism. I just wanted to say that um, picking up on my last point about Africa being ahead for the, for the Vaughn family, at least through the mid 20th century. It's not something that we, it might be surprising now when we consider the fact that so many immigrants from everywhere, including Africa, including Nigeria, including millions from Nigeria, want to come to the United States. And so to me, it's kind of poignantly ironic that that has reversed. And it only really reversed in the 1980s when Nigeria went under a tremendous economic crisis. But it's worth considering that the same forces that propelled Vaughn to leave, that is to say slavery um, and white supremacy, are, as many several historians have been pointing out this recently, are in large part responsible for the development of capitalism in the, in the United States and the economic growth that now makes the U.S. attractive to people from places like Nigeria. So it's this linked process that um, developed the United States and, as Walter Rodney put it, underdeveloped Africa. And it has put us in a place where it may seem surprising 
to remember a time when African Americans had much a much brighter future in Africa than in the United States. Thanks for listening to the So What Question. Visit our website at sowhatquestion.wordpress.com. Follow and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please rate and leave comments for us as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.